Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Christopher Beekler. Hey, it's Chris from Closebrace.com, coming to you from Providence, Rhode Island. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 I'm coming at you live, coding with my pants off. Yikes. Podcasting <laughs> with your pants off. And your video off, thankfully. Actually, it's it's not, it's not true. I have pants on. Oh, okay. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, starting up a new, another new thingy. You can go check it out at maxcoders.io. I'll probably do an episode about it at some point. So this week, our special guest is Valery Karpov. Hi, everyone. My name is Val. I work on Mongoose. I'm coming to you live here from San Mateo, California. Nice. Do you want to just remind people who you are, why you're famous? Uh, yeah, sure. This is probably like, what, my fourth or fifth appearance on JavaScript Jabber. I'm the maintainer of Mongoose, the most popular ODM for Node.js and Mongo. Started a few companies, most notably uh, LevelUp. that got acquired by Grubhub last year. Right now, I work for a tech company here in the Bay Area called Booster Fuels. We deliver gas to, um, to people while they work here in the Bay Area and in Dallas, Texas. Nice. One of the things that I find that we talk a lot about at the different conferences and the different things that I'm working on is open source software. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas around open source software, but we don't often think about the people who are building it and trying to maintain it. I had a friend, John, who came to me. He's been a guest on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times. He came and he actually said, hey, Chuck, I wish there was a show about sustaining open source. That really hit me where I live. And I have a few other friends who are working on projects related to this. So we all got together and we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. You can find it at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. It's a place where several people who are passionate about open source come together and have conversations about how it can be sustained and how it can be maintained and what we can do to help these maintainers continue to deliver us value that we build our software on. Most of the software we're building is based on open source. And so it's important to us to have that maintained and have it taken care of. Come check it out. It's been really interesting to listen to the conversations that they're having from people who are working in it all the time and just hear what they have to say about it. Once again, that's at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. It sounds like you're doing a lot of interesting stuff. We brought you on today to talk about debugging with async await. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a challenging topic, and I think well, a lot of frameworks right now don't really have good support for uh, for async functions. Classic example is just React error boundaries don't really work if you throw an error in an async function. Gotcha. Do they work well with promises? Async functions are mostly indistinguishable from a function that returns a promise. So they don't work that's too what, well yeah, with that's... promises as far as I know. Okay, that's what I thought. That's why I was confused because I was like, wait, well, how is this different than just using a normal promise? <laughs> I think like view actions actually do work well with async functions, but like views support for async await and my experience has been a little spotty and with React, it has been largely non-existent. And then, of course, Express um, Express 4 famously just hangs forever if you throw an error in an async function. Express 5, which is still not released as of this recording, I think it does promise to support it, but I haven't actually tried it yet. I have never had these problems. you never had an Express route hand- handler just hang on you for no reason? Well, no, because I always have a catch, and then I just return an error. And I, In fact, what I do in a lot of cases is I just have a little wrapper that I pass in kind of like middleware almost. Well, I guess not almost, but yeah. And then, and then just any time that something throws or returns a failure promise, then I just handle it with an error code. Oh, so you just do try catch or do you use dot catch? I use dot catch, but if I use try catch, 
Well, I don't, I don't know the way that async await converts to promises if it's different than a normal promise. But when I use the try catch, that works as well because then it, you know, if you're if you do a try catch inside of a resolve, the resolve will just wrap it as an error rejection, and you still. So if you if you do a promise with an, with a resolve, and then you have something throw in what's being resolved, then when you use dot catch, it'll be the same as if you did a try catch. You just don't have to write as much code. Yeah. Yeah, no. I like dot catch better than try catch because I find it to be more composable. Yes, um, exactly. And exactly. also robust. I mean, there's uh, there's two issues that I find with um, with try catch and async await. And I see a lot more people these days using try catch with async await, and I don't really like it. What they end up doing is they have an async function where the first line is try, and then the entire body of the function is uh, is in the try catch, and then they have a catch block. I'm not the world's biggest fan of that for two reasons. Number one, if you return a promise that rejects within a try catch, the catch block won't execute. That one is a nasty gotcha that um, is easy to get bitten by. And the other issue is, you know, you end up with an unhandled promise rejection if your catch handler throws. So if you have, uh, if you use dot catch as opposed to try catch, it's easy to just chain at the very end of all of your what you call it, function calls, just add like a, um, just add a catch handler at the end that just throws an error and kills the process if there's a, uh, if there's an error or if there's rather an unhandled error. So I, I don't know if I'm completely following. So what's the difference between a try catch and a dot catch? Cause I mean, I, I've put try catch around stuff and it does what it's supposed to most of the time, but yeah, asynchronous stuff, sometimes there's funky things that happen. So, you know, Pardon the noob question, I guess, but... Uh... So broadly speaking, there's kind of two ways to handle all errors in an async function without leading to an unhandled promise rejection. One is you wrap the entire body of the try catch of the async function in a try catch. That approach has a couple of limitations. The other approach is, and in calling an async function always returns a promise, Right. So you can just call dot catch on the promise to handle any errors that occur in that function body. And those those can be synchronous errors, asynchronous errors, whatever. As long as you are awaiting on all your async operations, you'll get a dot catch for all of the or that can handle any error, synchronous or asynchronous that occurs within the function body. One of the key differences though is that if you return a promise within a within an async function. And that return promise is wrapped in a try catch. The catch block won't get called if that promise is rejected. Whereas the dot catch, um, whereas if you call dot catch on the promise that the function returns, you'll actually catch that error. So the one place I found this to be tricky and unintuitive is in the rare case where you actually have to call new promise and have resolve and reject you can get unexpected behavior because Whoa. if you return from another promise inside of that, it doesn't bubble up. So I try to avoid that and only scope those things to like really, really tiny things like the classical example being set timeout. You need a promisable timeout. So I just create a function that only uses new promise within the very, very, very small scope where it's very, very, very well defined. Like for example, around the, the set timeout and you know call my resolver reject 
but then everything else I have chained in such a way that there's never a possibility for it to, to enter into one of those exceptional cases where you have the constructor style promise that behaves differently from the normal promise. That's one gotcha I, I've been bit by and I try to always avoid. I think like the only difference between the constructor promise and like a promise that's returned by a library though, is that the constructor promise is entirely under your control. So it's easy to make, um, it's easy to make some mistakes. For instance, um, let's see here. My favorite JavaScript interview question right now that I'm in the process of retiring. So are you familiar with node streams? Streams one, two, or three? It doesn't really matter that much, but call it streams three. It does matter, but go on. <laughs> but for the purposes of this exercise, it doesn't really matter that much because you're not worrying about back pressure or anything like that. But the question is basically, given a stream, implement a function called stream to promise that given a stream returns a promise that resolves to the concatenation of all the data chunks emitted by the stream or resolve or rejects if the stream emits an error event. Okay, one more time. That was a lot of words. <laughs> yeah, it is, a, it is a lot of words. It's easier to see in code. So at a very high level, a node stream is an event emitter that can emit three events, data, end, and error. Data means there's a new chunk of data available. Say that you know, you're reading something off the file system and it's read like the next line in a huge text file. End means the stream is done. There's no more data events going to be emitted. And error means some error occurred. The exercise is that given, uh, given a stream, uh, return a promise that resolves to like the concatenation of all the data events. So if I have a stream that emits ABC and data events with value A, B, and C, and then emits an end event, the promise resolves with the value ABC. Okay. Two things here. Typically, you would not ever want to resolve a promise with the result of the data. You'd want to resolve the promise that it's been handled already and have some sort of pipe inside, though, right? Hmm. Because otherwise, you're building up all that stuff in RAM and your server is going to crash because you're getting a gigabyte file in RAM and you've got a 512 megabyte instance or so you'd be surprised there are several node modules that like only expose stream apis as opposed to promise apis and if you're just looking at a small file it's often can to just convert into a promise as opposed to um as opposed to like just using it as a stream i've used yeah. this several times i remember there's a csv library that i use a lot where i'm just like i have a uh, i have like a relatively small csv file but it's got you know, uh, double quotes and escaping and stuff. And I just don't want, uh, I don't want to deal with that. So I'm just going to use the CSV library. The CSV library only had supports streams and the file's too small to justify it. So okay. like, it's actually an exercise that I've done myself more than, more than a few times in my day to day. Yeah. I just want to clarify, cause that's one of those things where it's like really simple to get it right and really simple to get it wrong. And the difference can be catastrophic when you actually go to deploy. And just for our listeners that don't know, don't ever use the data event except in the cases Val's talking about. Don't ever use the data event. Only use the readable event. If you use the data event, 
you will crash your server, you will cause network latency, things will go bad for you. Never use the data event, only use the readable event. Oh, interesting. I don't actually even know what the readable event does. So data always pushes data no matter what. You can't stop it. Well, yeah. you can. You have to implement complex logic with pause and resume. So technically, you, you can stop it. But readable, when you get a readable event, it is up to you to call uh, read in, inside of the function handler. And so then you get back a chunk of data and you call read until read returns null, meaning that it's empty, which actually can happen on the very first read if it's EOF. That's what pipe is going to be using under the hood. So when you pipe, pipe is efficient and it makes sure that it manages back pressure and you're not just loading stuff into memory. But when you use data, you're just loading stuff into memory without any regard. And it doesn't matter how fast or slow the thing is on the other end. You're just piling it up inside of RAM. But when you use readable, you're completely in control. And then the write function will return true or false to let you know that the buffer is full or not. So you can very simply put data in when there's data to be read and you have capacity for it and the thing on the other side is ready to handle it. And then you can just loop and wait when that's not the case. So you, you'll you never have a, a memory problem on it because you're never stampeding. It, it's, yeah, it's basically you, data creates a memory stampede. Yeah, I guess that's a case where you can actually mix like a more imperative style into, um, into dealing with a stream, right? So instead of having just like um, just having a push stream that's just pushing data to you, you can actually kind of say, "Hold up, don't push the data to me. I'll pull it." Yeah, and there, there's another module called pull streams, but I diverge. <laughs> but a yeah, lot of that's... people prefer that. A lot of people prefer that to the node stream. Yeah, honestly, like I never really liked streams as a uh, as a data model for reading from the hard drive anyway, because I always thought that you know like reading from the hard drive should be more of like a pull operation than a pull push, right? You should say explicitly like await next chunk as opposed to having a data handler that just spits off, uh, that just reads chunks as they come in. Because, yeah, like, in theory, you have control over the hard drive, right, as a, as a programmer. You shouldn't be reacting to what the hard drive does. The hard drive should be reacting to what you tell it to do. So, like, imperative style as opposed to reactive style. Agreed. Yeah. It's actually something I've been writing about a fair bit. I've been working on kind of a, uh, like, a new JavaScript tutorial site, masteringjs.io. And um, I think one of the recent emails I sent out was about like reactive programming versus imperative programming and kind of why I see JavaScript going more, more imperative these days because of uh, because async await is just fundamentally like a very imperative pattern. And imperative programming is, um, uh, let's say, easier for less experienced programmers to adopt and easier for people who aren't JavaScript experts to contribute. Because I think one of the biggest like concrete benefits that we've gotten from using async await here at Booster is that developers that aren't JavaScript developers, like say our, um, our iOS dev who works on our iPhone app, he can explicitly contribute to the JavaScript code without having to worry too much about, oh, what's an observable? Uh, how do I do this whole callback thing? He just kind of does for loops and if statements like he normally would in, uh, in Objective-C or Swift. So one thing I actually haven't tried because it just seemed weird and wrong. In a normal for loop, does await work 
in a strange way where that actually works or does it work like a promise where that does not work? Like when you do four, you know, X and Y, da, 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 does a weight actually stop the loop or is it just transpiling like a promise and it doesn't stop the loop? Uh, no, it suspends execution of the function until the promise is resolved. So like um, if you await on a timeout within a for loop, the loop won't execute until the timeout or won't continue to execute until the timeout is done. That is trippy. I've just done promise all in those cases because intuitively to me, it makes perfect sense and I know what it's doing without having to like think, is the compiler going to work this way or that way? I know when I do await promise.all that it's doing exactly what I think it should. So that's how I've done that. Yeah, it's funny. I see a lot of people saying that they use like await promise.all a lot. I find myself doing the opposite and going to um, and going to just doing a for loop and then just doing await one by one. I think it ends up being more because like I work with MongoDB a lot. And so um, one of the kind of odd quirks of MongoDB or like any database or a lot of other databases is that they can only execute so many operations in parallel. So like if I just send like in parallel 100 uh, update requests, I'm going to choke up the database and I'm willing to sacrifice like a little bit of performance or like a little bit of responsiveness on an update for, uh, for making sure there's consistent, or consistent throughput and I'm not kind of choking off the database for somebody else. So now granted, that makes perfect sense for that. So I wrote a module called Batch Async that is very, very light. It's like 15 lines long or something. Maybe maybe actually it's more like 15 lines long. I don't know. Anyway, it's like super light. But I mean, it sounds like with a weight in a traditional old school C style for loop, not a more modern JavaScript style for each loop. It sounds like that works, yeah. but you're limited to just one at a time. So I wrote this module batch async to be kind of like not as greedy as promise.all, but not as constrained as that scenario where you specify like run up to 10 of these at a time or whatever. Yeah. If anybody has that scenario and you want to find the happy medium between the two where you're not causing problems in either direction, you're welcome. That's pretty great. It's kind of similar to um, the, uh, the async library has a, uh, has a parallel limit function that does something similar. You just basically give it like, you know, callbacks and a number of these functions that you should execute in parallel at any given time. So like once they're done, it can, so like let's say you say, you know, parallel limit is two and you have like 10 functions. It executes like the first two until one of them is done, calls its callback, and then uh, and then kicks off the next one in the list. Does that sound about right? Yeah. I'll actually link in the show notes to, for people that are interested in how that works, that just want to learn because they, they enjoy learning, I've got a blog post that breaks it down on, how that works and why and what the hangups are if you try to implement it to yourself and that kind of thing. Yeah. Have you tried async iterators yet, AJ? So I, to be honest, I didn't try a, a wait, async await until this past week. <laughs> 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 because I, because to me, it just is so unintuitive from the way that JavaScript works. And, and it was slower. And that was a great excuse because anytime you can say something is slower, then like everybody just listens to you because it doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. You know, <laughs> saying faster or slower is like a trump card that it doesn't matter whether it's practical, doesn't matter anything. But our last guest told us that they actually finally made async way faster 
than promises for most use cases for like the, the typical way that people write async await. Mm-hmm. Oh, was your previous guest on the V8 team? Uh, n- no, no, but she had just done research about Node 12 and basically she said they made it two micro ticks faster, whatever that means, which I'm assuming means because you don't have to declare the variable, you don't have to go through the branching statements when you generate the code, like, you know, down in the VM compiler. Since if you're using async await, there's slightly fewer things that you have to do than if you were to do a promise, if you want to skip those steps. Like this kind of makes sense. Like just just having to read the name of, you know, whether or not you put a function name on the anonymous function that's in the promise is going to take some small insignificant amount of time when it's parsing and compiling. Because if the name is there, then it has one branch. If the name isn't there, it has another branch. If the name is there, it needs to look for that name reference somewhere inside the function. There's things like that that are insignificant and don't matter. And I'm guessing that a micro tick is somewhere similar to like five clock cycles, which, you know, a billion of those happen in a second. So I don't think it's actually practically faster, but somebody used the trump card word faster. And so I was like, all right, war's over. I guess I'll have to to use this. But I found out that a lot of browsers still don't, like the feature phone browsers in particular, they still don't support async await. And so I have to go do Babel and I've, I've been really blech about Babel because I, I just like writing JavaScript. I like the old days. I'm, I'm, I'm a curmudgeon. But anyway, yeah. I mean, would you so, believe so, no, that I have not tried to developer who hasn't, uh, who hasn't used Babel or at least not for anything other than occasional JSX since like, I haven't used this since 2016 for anything else. Like I don't really use Babel for like transpiling anything because I so, haven't really done much. Um, most of like my browser side apps are just kind of um, internal tools that are just meant to run in Chrome. And if you're not using a recent Chrome, well then please upgrade. <laughs> or at least I could, usually it's for people who are internal to the company. Have, um, they, uh, what do you call it? I can tell them to upgrade. And then for consumer facing, I often end up doing just static sites with just HTML. That's interesting to hear because I'm I just was kind of under the assumption that everybody else in the world, other than me and Chris Fernandi, were running Babel every day. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, we um, what do you call it? At Booster, we we used to use Babel when I first started for transpiling our Node.js server code, but um, we kind of stopped around uh, 2016. Kind of once we uh, once we upgraded to Node six and um, oh no. I think we actually stopped transpiling before Node 6. The only reason why we used Babel was for just destructuring assignments in Node 4 back in the day. Then we just decided, okay, we're not going to use uh, we're not going to use destructuring assignments until they're actually supported in Node because it's just not worth the headache of maintaining Babel just for that. Yeah, I think I used to have to run transpilers all the time. And I mean, I still technically do because I work in React all the time. So there's, like you said, with JSX transpiling, you kind of need it. But um, in terms of running them for supporting ES6 features. It's just not an issue I run into very frequently anymore. The newer versions of Node support virtually all of them. Most modern browsers support virtually all of them. So it's just, unless you're using some pretty obscure stuff, I haven't had to work with Babel a lot lately. So the the reason I say that, the uh, baseline Android phones, like the one that you go get at the Cricket store, they run what's called UC browser, the Android browser. That doesn't support it. The Android browser is pretty much dead. I don't think it's going to get more, any more updates. I think they're just going to let all those feature phones die out over the next few years. And then um, the phones that people use in India and China also don't support it. Like, you know, like people that don't have the, the Samsung Galaxy, the iPhone, you know, the $700 phones, right. people that have the $50 phones are still 
stuck with browsers that that w- would require a Babel compile in order for it to use, which is a significant chunk of the population of the world. You know, if you're not concerned with just the United States and and the richer parts of Europe, certainly true. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. You're building a React app that that targets a very broad market. You're definitely going to need Babel. That's just you know not what I'm working on these days. These days I'm working. Um, I'm actually doing a lot of Vue, and I'm working on primarily just internal tools. One of the great benefits of Vue don't need a transpiler, don't need a bundler. We end up using Webpack just so we can actually use Require. But in theory, you can build like a rudimentary Vue app without uh, without Webpack or without anything else. So on the topic of frameworks, I'm curious, you said earlier and in some of your documentation for the episode that frameworks in general don't handle async await particularly well and specifically React, which, like I said, I work in a lot, uh, handles it very poorly. What are some ways to mitigate that? How, how do we get around that? I mean, it's a hard question for the React team. Um, have you worked with React Suspense at all? Still new to it. Haven't, haven't really touched it yet. Yeah, I haven't really touched it yet either. I've read a little bit about it, and that kind of promises to be how, uh, how, how React supports async await is um, I think like you throw a promise and that kind of cancels the render until the promise is resolved or rejected, which mm-hmm. is a little strange. But on the other hand, like it would be pretty great if you could just have an async component did mount function and React kind of figures that out for you. Because so there is like, there are error boundaries. There is like component did catch will handle, uh, will handle, you know, uncaught synchronous errors within, uh, within render. Right. But if your render function is async or your component did mount is async, that uh, the error boundary and component that did catch won't help you. I have had to jump through hoops numerous times to deal with trying to do stuff on component mount that's asynchronous because of that, where you end up writing sub-functions to run just so that you can use async await in those because React will complain if you try to use, or at least ESLint will complain if you try to use async await in your component did mount. Yeah, I would think it wouldn't be that difficult to make it so that at least like an async error bubbles up at least to an error boundary if your your component did mount function is async. But on the other hand, I don't work on React, so I can't really say how, uh, how difficult it is. On the other hand, like Vue ends up doing a pretty decent job of that in that like if an async Vue method throws an error that's not caught, it at least bubbles up as a as a, as an exception as opposed to um, as opposed to just being an unhandled promise error or an unhandled promise rejection. So I like, get it, it's doable, I think. I'm just not sure like what's um, what's blocking React from doing it. What really is a head scratcher for me is why it's taken Express so long. I mean, it's been like what four years and change since uh, since promises were introduced in ES six, and they really don't do automatic promise handling for you. And like, it's something that they could easily implement. Like, I've had a, I did write a tutorial a few years back that was just entitled like Write Your Own Express from Scratch. And it was relatively short because like the fundamental ideas of Express are relatively simple. It's all just middleware. Right. Uh, but the fact that you know they don't handle promises returned from middleware functions is a bit of a head scratcher. It's the devices-ness. It's the devices that I can't say the word. I was going to say divisiveness of the JavaScript community. They just they're so strong about their opinions. They want to make sure that people that have a different opinion have a bad time. And I agree. 
uh, I guess we can talk about canceling promises and whether that's a, uh, whether that's actually valuable. That seems to be a very common talking point on Twitter. Everyone com- likes to complain that oh, promises are unusable because they're not cancelable. I totally don't understand this argument. I have not seen this stuff happen on Twitter, but I've heard you're the second or third person that's mentioned something about this. And again, this is like, I have never experienced this problem. I do not know what people are talking about. Yeah, to be honest, I have never actually been like, I want to cancel a promise. It has never happened to me. And the problem is that like, even if you're using RxJS, like there is no way for you to actually cancel an async operation in the general case. Let's say you're using Angular 2 or Angular 8, whatever it is now, and you are using RxJS that has the function, the ability to cancel an async request, and you send an HTTP request that's wrapped in RxJS, right? If the HTTP request has already been physically sent onto the wire, as in like it's already on the network, the way that RxJS cancellation works for that is that it just unlinks the, uh, the handler for the request. The request is still out there. It's still going to the server. The server will still get it. The server will still send a response. You just won't be listening for the response. So like, it's cancellation in that you're, you're adding a special function called cancel that just lets you ignore the response. Ditto for, uh, ditto for like if you're working with MongoDB, right? I suppose it's possible to cancel something on an operation on the MongoDB side. But like the MongoDB driver, for instance, if you were to wrap it in RxJS, it would really have a hard time, or you'd really have a hard time like coming up with a way to cancel an arbitrary operation. Just because once the operation is in progress, like if you're if you've already sent an update operation that's hit the MongoDB server, you can't really undo that unless you have a transaction in place. So I what is that? That doesn't have anything to do with promises in particular. That's just implementations of libraries, people generally don't implement a way to cancel something midstream. Yeah, exactly. And canceling something in general is a very complex problem. It's something that, like, let's say you're executing a GET request against a, uh, against an API, right? Like, what does it mean to cancel that? Like, so, if it already got to the server and, it's in, and the server's already doing some work to execute the GET request, like, if you sent a cancel, well, then should it stop doing it? But then if you're getting or if you're already getting a response back from the server and that's in flight and you try to send the cancel, what should the server do? This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So two, two things. So you want to optimize for the happy path not for the sad path. In most cases, very rare in your application logic, do you want to optimize for the sad path? Now, people talk about optimizing the sad path for the user experience that, you know, they get good error messages. Totally agree. But in terms of like code optimizations and resource optimizations, 
You want to resource optimize towards happy path, not towards sad path, because then you're just going to write a bunch of code for stuff that rarely ever happens. So the first thing is, what optimization are you actually trying to achieve with this idea of canceling? Because the idea of just like ignoring the response, to me, that's good enough for the user experience, right? They just, you just want to say, hey, that thing that you did, we're not going to show you the data. And probably half the time you could still cache the data or something in case they go back to do that operation again. But, you know, it's, it's happening. But the second thing is why? Like, what are you really trying to solve for in the cancellation process? So, you know, why optimize for the sad path? And what, what's, to me, this sounds more like a theoretical problem than a real problem. And that might be marginalizing some people, but I'm a marginalizer. <laughs> I mean, I have had one practical or one case in uh, working on Mongoose where I have... In how many years? Oh, in, uh, in over five years, five okay. and a half at this in point. Five and a half years, so you like, one practical case. Okay, go on. And it's even, it's a stretch in terms of a practical case. I got like a bug report recently where, so if Mongoose has um, we call it, like change detection on a single document. So you talk, type like document.a equals five and then type document.save and then we send updates document property A to five to the database, right? But then what happens if you do doc.a equals five, doc.save, and then in the same tick, you modify another property and then call .save on the document again within the same tick of the event loop, like synchronously. In Mongoose, it ends up being that the first save succeeds. The second save throws an error that says that you're trying to save the same document multiple times in parallel, but both updates end up going to the database. And like, I'm not quite sure how I can work around that without like actually canceling a promise or doing some sort of snapshotting, make that behavior kind of like make sense. What about debouncing? Debouncing is one thing, but then it becomes like, should both save operations succeed? Should the first save operation throw an error? Oh, it okay. seems counterintuitive that the second uh, that the second save operation throws an error, despite the fact that the updates that happen between the first save and the second save succeed. Winner wins. That's what I say. <laughs> Winner wins. That's a uh, that's a good one. Truth and yeah. data. But yeah, that was one case where I thought, okay, maybe if I just quote-unquote cancel the first save and just take the second save, it could make sense. But on the other hand, it's also something that we just generally don't want people to do. I don't think there's ever actually a case for you wanting to call save twice in the same tick of the event loop just because, well, why call it twice when you can call it once, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm, what I'm hearing is you had a specific bug that required non-generic engineering to solve. This sounds like the kind of problem that there is not a way that you could say, well, generally, we would cancel this event this way. This is something that requires a knowledge of, well, in, in, in your case, specifically, you're saying you don't even know because you, you don't know what the user's expectation is, what cancel is supposed to mean in a generic sense in that case, because it's not generic. It's very specific. Is that, is that right? Yeah. It's a very specific case where cancellation might be helpful, but I I still haven't been able to wrap my head around like what should the right behavior be 
for that uh, for that particular use case. Intuitively, I kind of want it to be like both save operations succeed, but on the other hand, what the implications of that are for the rest of the code base is always a uh, is the tricky question. Okay. This is kind of what I think as well, like what you're describing. When I've come across cancellation issues, it's very specific to that particular use case. And maybe there's like some general cancellation semantics that could be implemented. But uh, I mean, like, yeah, it's a pain, but it's, it's not something that's so often that I can't just be like, well, for this specific case... Instead of returning a promise, I'll return an object that has a cancel method and a promise. And if you want to use the promise, then use the promise. Otherwise, you you know, like yeah, it's it's like it's not beautiful. It's not like uh, you know, beautiful, wonderful, functional code that's hyper composable. No, you you have to make a special case for that one instance, and you have to handle it differently. And there is the potential problem that you know you've got your red functions and your blue functions, and now you've introduced a green function and you have to go change a bunch of other functions to be able to like this for this thing to be able to propagate. And that's, that's, I think where it's the most painful. And I think where I imagine people would have the argument for, we need a generic way of canceling. But again, in my experience, it's so rare that I really need to focus on that sad path and optimize that sad path that it, you know, whatever a bad thing happens and someone that's human has to make a decision how to deal with it most of the time. Anyway, it's not a generic thing. I'm curious if anybody else has had experience with these times where you need to cancel something, Christopher, Chuck. So for me, I think what you were saying uh, about handling it really more on the front end is my general approach to that kind of thing. If you, send out a request and then you don't want to do anything with the request, then just don't do anything with it. You know, if the data comes back and you no longer need it, you, there are relatively straightforward ways to just be like, okay, thanks, but I'm not going to render this or I'm not going to, you know, it just feels to me like it's not something I deal with frequently. In general, if I'm sending out async requests, a lot of it is XHR, you know, and that kind of stuff. And I want whatever's coming back. So it's certainly not an issue I've run into frequently. Have you played with async generator functions yet, AJ? Oh, so no, no, I'm the wrong person to ask, but go on with those generator and iterator and all that stuff. But ask, ask Christopher, he'll know. Yeah. How about you, Christopher? Have you tried async generator functions yet? See, you'd think that, but uh, actually, no, I was going to ask about them uh, as my next question. I'm curious what their benefit is. So my favorite use case or my favorite motivation for async generator functions and one that like, this is kind of how I got started using ASIC generator functions was that. So the big project that I'm working on right now here at Booster involves um, basically a routing problem solver. So like a solver for a generalized traveling salesman problem. It runs for a very long time and I need to be able to report on progress on like this request that goes out over a WebSocket to actually solve this particular problem. So like I want to be able to report progress and say like, oh, it's 40% done. Oh, I've actually loaded the distance matrix and now I've sent the problem to the solver. Just, yeah, progress reporting. Gotcha. So I have a, uh, so underneath the hood, like the actual function, the actual solve function that structures the data and sends the request over to the, uh, the core solver. 
is structured as an async generator function that makes asynchronous requests to the database, makes asynchronous HTTP requests to gather data and send the request to a solver. But then it also yields to, um, to report on its progress. And then so every time it yields, I have like a kind of a framework around it that says like, oh, okay, you know, the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the async generator function yielded this thing that says that, oh, I'm at this stage of the function and send it, uh, send it back up over the WebSockets to the front end. So that's kind of the motivation. But what makes that interesting and related to cancellation is that kind of like when an async generator function yields, you explicitly need to call next in order for it to actually pick up again. So you can kind of cancel an async generator function by not calling next based on what it yielded and then just let the, uh, the function get garbage collected. So if you say like, you know, yield cancel token or something like that, you can have a framework around that that looks for, oh, did the function yield cancel token? If it did, I'm not going to resume it. So in this particular instance, your yields throughout your, uh, your generator function are behaving sort of in the way that, you know, if you're running a console.log and trying to figure out where in your function something's breaking uh, and you put 10 console.logs in, the yields are kind of the same way, kind of the same setup, right? Where they're, you're yielding at a specific point to say, I've made this progress and now I'm moving on to this next part of the function. The difference being that in your what's listening to the generator function has to specifically call next to say, okay, gotcha, that I know where you are and now move on to the next part. Yeah, exactly. And then the cool framework around the async generator function can actually listen for like what you're yielding. So you can think of it as instead of putting a console.log of message, you yield a message, and then you can have a framework around that that either decides, oh, if uh, if environment is development, I'm going to log that to the console. If environment is production, I'm going to send it out over the appropriate WebSocket or send that message over the WebSocket. Nice. It's almost it so like that it's like building kind of like your own framework for uh, for reporting on progress. That's very cool. It's almost like being able to return values in the middle of the function. Yeah, that's exactly what a generator is. Is um, it's a function that like lets you re-enter into the function later. Gotcha. So like when you yield, that's like a return that still retains the internal state of the function, and then the function can be resumed later. So this is something that makes perfect sense for very large data sets or very long running operations, like what you have with a cursor in a database that you want to iterate over a million records or something that is you know, going to be really long running. For the love of all that is sacred and holy in this world, please, listeners, when you have an item that's five lines long and it's a bounded set that's never going to be more than five items, don't complicate your code this way, please. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I guess it's tempting to use the, uh, the latest and greatest fanciest thing, but um, it can also be overkill. I, mean, well, like, I, I bring one case where I'm like, basic generator function makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little bit of overkill. It's an awesome tool in the toolbox. The reason I bring that up is because of the WhatWG spec for basically everything WhatWG is doing new now uses iterators and like really fancy crap that's just, oh, makes me angry inside. When you do new URL, because it's like, okay, web browser, it should be able to parse a URL. We haven't had that for 20 years. Oh, sweet. Someone added a URL parser to the spec. Amazing. Now we have a URL object in the DOM and also in Node, right? This is great. 
So now we have a standard URL parser. So you parse the URL in console.log, what do you get? Empty object, pretty much. Like <laughs> the query parameters, the query parameters, like how many query parameters are you going to have? Two, three, like 12 on a really complicated bad day? And they made it into an iterator. So you have to write all this funky do code around it just to console.log an object that shows you the two or three things that are inside of it. That's where my caution is. I absolutely believe they are an awesome tool in the toolbox for certain use cases. But gosh, when I see people implement them, it's like for cool factor or for like, we're functional purists. We're writing better code for all three items in our list. And that just drives me insane because then, well, it doesn't drive me insane unless I'm the one that has to deal with it. So I guess don't publish your, your code if you're going to do that type of thing. I don't ever want to see it. Yeah. Yes, I do find it kind of annoying that like the map class, the built-in JavaScript map, when you call dot keys or dot values or dot entries on the map, you get back an iterator, not an array. It seems a little frivolous and a little just like, oh, hey, look, we have this new iterator thing. Let's just use it for a lot of stuff. As opposed so for- to just like, you're not like, it seems silly just because like the map is already in memory, right? So like, why do you need an iterator as opposed to an array? And for those of you that are stuck in the future and don't know about the boring, old, simple ways to do things, because I know that that's how some people learn to program is from all the new object.keys, object.values, they're your friends. <laughs> yeah, but then map.keys and map.values and map.entries, those return iterators, not arrays, but object.keys, object.values, and object.entries return an array. it is a little annoying sometimes but well in that case array.from is your friend just wrap everything in array.from and everything goes away which is yeah i find myself using array.from way too often for my taste oh i did not know that's a pro tip right there i didn't know you could pass an iterator into array.from of course i try to avoid iterators at all costs but now next time i have to deal with the url object and getting query parameters i will certainly use array.from instead of writing like five lines of stupid iterator code. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but then you better watch out. If you get an async iterator, array.prom is not your friend. <laughs> I don't believe in those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah no, it gets, uh, gets a little confusing when you've got like, okay, we have async iterators. Now we have async generator functions that return an async iterator, and it just gets a little confusing after a while. <laughs> Yeah, it would be nice if JavaScript kind of like helped unify like like async await a little or make async await like a little bit less of an edge case than um, than it is right now. There's kind of just a lot of stuff that doesn't quite work right. Another interesting feature request I've been I've gotten a few times for Mongoose is um, support for async to JSON functions, specifically making JSON stringify like making json.stringify asynchronous basically and making it so that like custom transformations to uh, to json.stringify can actually support asynchronous functions but they don't right now json.stringify has to be synchronous a little bit of a side note but that is super 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 important json.stringify will kill you because it runs on the main thread so there is no way of getting away from it. Because even when you're transferring messages between like node cluster processes or worker threads in the browser, you're doing it through JSON, right? Like you don't get a memory reference to an object from another thread. 
unless there's some new improvement that I don't know about yet. But anyway, so JSON objects that are really small, that have five keys, which, you know, you're passed around 90% of the time, no problem. But you json.stringify, you know, a, a return list of, you know, a thousand items, 10,000 items, you know, it, it, the, the processing time actually grows exponentially, not linearly with json.stringify. It is meant for small things. And if you are using it, and I, like, I thought I was going to get a performance increase on something one time. I was doing premature optimization. Like almost all optimization is premature. But I was like, okay, I'm going to get some performance increase out of this. I'm going to run node cluster. And I'm going to do this over here and this over here. But the data that I needed to transfer between the processes, I was json.stringifying. And the json.stringify, I think, decreased the performance of my app. <laughs> <laughs> And also console.log is like that too. A lot of people don't know console.log is synchronous. Console.log will kill your app. So unless you're wrapping it with like an if debug console.log, all those console.logs are on the main thread and they are slowing down your server. They're limiting the number of requests that you can take per second. Which again, for like console.log debug value true false, not a problem. Console.log, this object I returned from the database with 600 items, very much a problem. That also seems like if you're doing it on the server, it's a really good way to bloat your log files very quickly. There was actually an issue that I ran into a couple of months ago on this, um, on the routing project that I'm working on, where, yeah, the um, the issue was server was hanging. Why? Because I was console.logging an Axios response and the uh, the actual response what do you call it? The request body and the response body were like huge, multiple megabytes. So that console.log was grinding the whole server to a halt. And if you just console.log the node request object, it is huge because it has so many properties on it and goes so many levels deep. Yeah, it's gigantic. Yeah, exactly. Because the response also, well, at least with Axios, I forget whether it does with node the response object includes the request object as well. So if you have a huge request body and then a huge response, uh, well, then that, that gets really bad real quick. And then it's accessible from like four different locations, like dot underscore connection, dot underscore stream, dot underscore request, dot underscore response. So not only do you have it, but you have it like, you know, four times for each you know, API shim that they have in there where it's referencing what it used to be called in the previous version of Node or a shortcut way that if you're in this object and you need to get to it from the this inside, da-da-da. Yeah, it's it's terrible. Nice. Anything else that we should uh, attack on this before we go to picks? Sounds like we've uh, covered a lot of this. Val, if people want to follow you online, where do they go? Um, you can find me on GitHub, vkarpov15. You can find me on Twitter at code underscore barbarian. Cool. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues 
when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Well, uh, let's go ahead and do some picks. AJ, do you want to start us off with picks today? Oh, gosh darn it, do I ever, except I don't remember what I had. Oh, no, I've got one. I've got one for sure. Okay, so uh, Chuck, you're going to have to help me with his name because maybe you know how to say his last name. I just call him Ethan, but his last name is Garofalo. Do you know him? I think I've heard the name. Ethan Garofalo. Man, he's going to... Well, he's not actually going to be that upset because he probably knows that even though I've known him for years, I don't say his last name ever. (laughs) But anyway, he is pretty much the world expert on microservices. And he came to mind while we were talking about canceling because one of the things he recommends is that, and, and this I think is perfectly valid advice. Anytime you have a request response cycle that doesn't execute in constant time, Meaning that depending on what the request is, the response may require a variable amount of processing, or there may be a, like there, there's actions that aren't, cannot guarantee to basically instant return something. Basically, if something's not in memory, more or less, that you use this event pattern. And I think it totally makes sense. You do a request to fire off an event and your response you get back is just request made. That's, that's the response you get back. And then you do either some sort of polling or WebSocket or something like that to check for whatever the system needed to do at that event to check for its completion. And this also gives you the opportunity to do things like if you have a particularly long-running event and you needed to add a cancel API on the server side, this gives you an opportunity where you could do that pretty darn easily to you know, send a message and say, okay, that event I requested, cancel it. And then potentially have, and this is not something that he recommends the canceling thing. This is something I'm inserting, but you know, then you could potentially say, okay, if this thing has multiple pipelines, I can just insert, you know, a message here so that when it gets to the stage in the pipeline, when it finishes its current stage in the pipeline, it knows, it knows don't continue on to the next stage in the pipeline. But the, the basic idea in general, regardless of it, totally has nothing to do with canceling. It's just something I thought of. And he has a number of talks that he has available free that he's done at um, user groups or that when he's done at companies, uh, he's uh, allowed them to, to publish it. So he's got some stuff on YouTube. I'll link to actually a playlist of things. I don't, I'm not going to say that one is better than the other. I'm not ordering them at this point. I'm just going to put it together so I can put it in the show notes. But I highly recommend watching his talks. And it might take two or three of them before you you kind of get it, not because he's not good at explaining it, but because many of us are not actually familiar with what a microservice really is. We hear the buzzword thrown around the office, but what people are really doing is creating monoliths that are more complicated because instead of running in one server, they run in many servers. And the way that he talks about it is true microservices where you are actually separating concerns. You're actually making sure that servers can run independently 
that if an error happens with one, that the rest of the system can continue to work. So he really is just an expert consultant on microservices and related event design patterns. So I'm picking him and his talks. And then I'd pick something else, but but I'll just pick something next time because I don't remember what else I had. All right. Christopher, what are your picks? So my pick uh, this week is actually a book by a guest that we just had on this show. It's Functional Design Patterns for Express.js by, rather, Jonathan Lee Martin. We interviewed him a couple of shows ago, and I was really impressed with what he had to say. I went out and bought the book. I'm working my way through it. I'm nowhere near done at this point, but it's a really well put together book. I'm really enjoying the the pacing of it. And I think that uh, in general, it's one of the more readable code books I've found. Uh, he talked on the show about doing various, uh, putting together various publication paths so that he could show diffs easily in code and that kind of thing. And it really, really helps when you're going through all the code examples. So uh, if you work with express.js and you're at all interested in working in a more functional manner, manner, then I recommend it. Again, it's Functional Design Patterns for Express.js by Jonathan Lee Martin. Yeah. If you could drop a link to that, I'll buy that book like immediately. Absolutely. We'll do. Yeah. That sounds like a really good read. Yeah. Like on the show, it was funny because I think two of the hosts bought it during the show. Yeah. Both of the panel members, uh, I did. and, And I think it was Jim. Jason yeah. also did. Yeah, good stuff. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks of my own. Uh, first of all, I just got off a call this morning with the folks putting on Microsoft Ignite, which is a conference done by Microsoft. They usually talk about a lot of Microsoft technologies, but uh, they're always doing interesting things with Microsoft Azure and stuff like that. And so if you're using any of their services at all, we're going to be doing a couple of shows from the conference there. So um, definitely check that out. Uh, my friend Richard Campbell is involved in organizing some of that stuff. And um, I'm really looking forward to catching up with some folks that I've uh, seen at some of the other events as well. So yeah, keep an eye out for that. Those episodes will probably be coming out sometime in October or sorry, in, in late November because the the conference is the beginning of November. So Looking forward to that. I'll probably also wind up at KubeCon in San Diego, and I'm going to be in um, San Francisco mid-October. So I'm going to try and pull together some meetups. So if you want to come out and uh, hang out and grab dinner and stuff like that, if you go to devchat.tv, there should be an events tab at the top. And so uh, just click on that, and we'll see if we can uh, line up a time for you know for you and I and whoever else to get together. So... Yeah, anyway, I love connecting with people, and that's just kind of an opportunity that I have there. And then finally, I'm in the process of pulling together a membership for listeners. It's funny because people keep telling me, well, just do an open collective or just do Patreon. And the issue is is that Patreon is kind of a pain for giving people extras for supporting the shows, and I really do want to provide extra value for people who are providing extra value to me. And Open Collective is another one where, I, again, you know, it's, it's made more for people to donate than it is for people to get value back. And so the idea behind this membership site, and, and I really want to create a movement behind it called Max Coders. The idea is, well, Max is part of my name. It was also my dad's name. And, uh, you know, I'll explain the whole thing. I'll probably do an episode on it. But we're going to do uh, monthly Q&As. So if people have questions about their careers or technology or anything 
that we can answer. And I'll probably wind up bringing on some of my co-hosts for those and see if, you know, or, or expert guests, and you can ask them questions. And then I'm also going to be doing um, more of a webinar style thing and bringing in experts for that kind of thing too. And then I'm kind of toying with creating basically add-on memberships for each of the topics that we have shows on. So JavaScript, Angular, React, Vue, Ruby, Elixir, React Native, iOS development, freelancing, etc., and giving people kind of an opportunity to max out. And, and, and that's kind of the tagline for the whole thing is just maxing out your skills, maxing out your life. The general material that you're going to get as part of that too is just going to be videos from me explaining how you can level up and learn more and stay current and all that good stuff. We're going to be focused on, you know, providing you other ways to max out while we're going and uh, keep you current that way. So anyway, if you go to maxcoders.io, then it should be up by the time this goes live and uh, we'll be ready to, to roll. I'm probably also going to do kind of a, a launch sequence where like the first 20 people get it for a low price and then, um, you know, the next 20 people get it for a slightly less low price. We'll just kind of move up from there and see, you know, where we wind up at, where people are, you know, filling spots. So the best way to stay on top of that is to get on the mailing list. So if you go to devchat.tv, there are a lot of different places on there where you can actually put your email address in. That'll get you on the list. Then we can let you know when it's coming out and uh, we'll roll with it that way. I kind of had this idea a while ago with like everywhere JS and everywhere RB. And I just didn't get enough people signing up for that. So anyway, that, that's kind of where we ended up. But yeah, maxcoders.io is where we're heading with that. I'm actually rebranding the Get a Coder Job book. So it's the Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. And I'm hoping to write more books as well and get those out there so that, you know, we'll have Max Coder's Guide to Staying Current with Technology and Max Coder's Guide to, you know, whatever else. So we'll see how that goes too. But that's the direction that I'm heading. In fact, I'm kind of playing with the idea of putting together a behind-the-scenes podcast for devchat.tv and just what we're working on there. Anyway, uh, I have rambled for long enough. Val, do you have some picks? Yeah, sure. For the last few months, I've been working on that JavaScript tutorial site, masteringjs.io. Content is all 100% free, kind of like short, bite-sized articles about full-stack JavaScript focusing on Vue and Express. So check it out. Sign up for our mailing list. Get, uh, get some really good quality content and uh, level up your career. And for uh, another uh, more fun pick for late summer reading, I've been reading uh, Jurassic Park, the Michael Crichton novel that, um, that the movie was based on. It's a really fun read and it's really fun to geek out about. I've never seen a book where like, it actually has illustrations of graphs and those graphs are actually important to the plot. So it's actually pretty fun. I'm having a, I'm having a blast. It's a little different from the movie. But um, I think it's kind of like it kind of is useful as a standalone, even if you've uh, even if you've seen the movie and you loved it, check out the Jurassic Park novel. Yeah, the book was really good. I really like that whole um like uh, there was that like that normal distribution plot where Dr. Malcolm was just like, Oh, now I know the dinosaurs have escaped, and you're like, Wait, what how how do you know that? It's just like it's just a normal distribution. What's wrong here? And then they explain it a few pages later, you're like, Oh my god, that's so cool. <laughs> They really thought that out really well. Nice. All right. Well, folks, go check out. It was jsmastery.io. Uh, Masteringjs.io. Mastering J. I, I know. I'm good at those up. So thank you. Yeah. Masteringjs.io and uh, follow uh, Val on Twitter as well. And we'll wrap this up, and we'll have more JavaScript coming at you later this week or next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit 
C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.